0: Get. all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fuck nicks what's happening i'm mark Marin. uh today on the show i talked to kenya barris he's the uh creator of blackish and the writer of girls trip as well and he's also got this new uh comedy series on Netflix called Black AF. as fuck, right? Right? See, I know how to... I'm not great with those. I am not good. I always have to look up the... um, What do you call those when it's just letters? Someone gave me a... -A O-D-A-T. I didn't know what that was. One day at a time. Had to look it up. Didn't know if it was something dirty or not. Okay, so I'll talk to Kenya Barris in a minute or two. It's going to be tricky. It's going to be tricky, folks. My brother left yesterday, and uh, I'm going solo, and I guess this is the time I go solo. This is what happens. uh, I guess it'll be two weeks tomorrow, and now I'm by myself, and I'm in lockdown. I'm quarantined. You know, it's weird because I I don't... I'm mad, I I guess I'm mad, sure. I'm mad because someone I love died. But but I've been around long enough to know that... I've seen many people I know die. For one reason or another. Sometimes for no reason at all. It's always fucking horrible. And I I just don't know what's going to happen. I really don't know what's going to happen in my mind... I mean, I'm getting out, I'm getting onto the mountain, I'm getting out into the air, I'm getting hiking, I'm talking to people all the time. I got a headache right now. I'm having a hard time breathing because I'm holding in my fucking feelings most of the time or stuffing, I don't even know if I'm stuffing them, it's just like, the fuck am I supposed to do? I guess I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I'm afraid, you know, it's this one day at a time shit, this one minute at a time shit. But I I tell you, man, I am amazed at people just being human. Just people, just old school shit. People are sending cards, like, like old school cards in the mail, condolence cards. My neighbors, who I don't really know that well have come over. Guy across the street came over a few days ago. He'd cook some chicken. He offered me some chicken. Flowers are coming. Foods is coming still. Ice cream came. Emails, texts. But just people showing up. I just, I'm scared of my mind. I got to figure out a way. I will figure out a way. I don't want to be a downer, man. I I don't want to bring everyone down. I'm still way in the fucking woods. And why wouldn't I be? I'm just trying to frame the thoughts into good things. I'm trying to feel the feelings. But holy fuck, you guys. Jesus Christ. Now I just got to look at fucking Monkey. I was prepared for Monkey to die. I was not prepared for my girlfriend to die. I've been preparing for Monkey to fucking die for months. But now, like, if he dies, I mean, Jesus Christ. That'll just be like, all right, there. Well, there you go. Thank God the grief portal is open. I'll just toss him through it, too. Fuck. But I'll be honest with you, the concern I share with the people I talk to on the phone is just that, like I'm worried about, you know, where my brain goes. And you know, the advice I've gotten is you stay in touch with people. Do what you got to do take care of yourself, you know, because it doesn't take much for me to get bleak and wonder, you know, what it's all worth. You know, I will try to embrace whatever the hell Lynn saw in me and what you people seem to see in me. God damn it. I hope I get. Funny again. I've been kind of funny, I guess, on the phone just trying to stay sane. I watched the in-laws the other night again with my brother been cooking. You know, I'm it's it's going to be a long haul and I'm going to have to hang on. And I hope I'm not draining you guys and I hope everybody who's going through grief is is well supported as I am. I guess we're all kind of traumatized. But uh but yeah, I'm in touch with people. And it's weird, I don't think about drinking, I don't think about using drugs, I don't think I think a little bit about nicotine, you know, food, yeah, you know, you know. The uh onanism. <laughs> when does that start? When do I start jerking off like a monkey to feel better? Huh? When does that happen? It's happening right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you guys, you should know what I'm doing, right? God damn, you guys. My heart is busted wide open. Motherfucker. Whew. Kenya Barris is on the show today. He's got a new comedy series. Black AF, Black as Fuck, is now streaming on Netflix. We did it over the video before um before the sadness and it was pretty good you know i had i I never know when people know anything about me or or give a shit but i'm learning man so this is me and kenya barris uh coming right up just give me a sec all right give me a sec So, dude, nice to meet you. You too, man. Such
1: a, such a, such a, such a huge fan. You're,
0: oh, that's nice of you.
1: Your Patrice O'Neill is like a class could be taught on it. I'm writing a movie, and it reminds me that Patrice was going to be, I think, that next level of comic. You know what I'm saying? I think that he was already there. for for He was a comics comic. You know what I'm saying? He was already there. Yeah. But he was going to be like, you know, Honestly, I've I've been looking at the um Jordan doc, doc which I'm in love with like they could just pump it into my arm. Yeah. Michael Jordan, you could look at his rookie year his rookie his the his game, his rookie year, the way he played and put that game into the NBA right now it'd be the best game in the NBA. Like <laughs> yeah, the, right. the game has not progressed past where he was at, you know what I'm saying? Like Right. Yeah, yeah. derivative and so I mean even though LeBron's amazing and Kobe's amazing, his the way Michael Jordan played the game has not been played better than that. Richard Pryor to me the way Richard Pryor, what he did, we have it's been derivative. Comedy's been derivative in some aspects since then. You know what I'm saying?
0: I, I think that's true, yeah.
1: And I kind of feel like the first, that new voice that was starting to feel different for me, honestly. Patrice was a, was as, as his powers were going to grow, I think that his voice was going to be, I mean, I'm sorry, bigger than Chappelle, bigger than, I mean, and Chappelle's my go- god, you know what I'm saying? He's my friend, but he's also like a god. You know, bigger than Chappelle, bigger than than Seinfeld bigger than you know I think that Patrice O'Neill's voice was that and you're your Marin. Yeah. Like he said something that I have quoted and put in so many different ways. It's so but like little things he said the way he thought, you know what I'm saying? He was yes. you know he was an autodidact. He wasn't somebody who fucking you know was super you know formally educated, but he was brilliant. He yeah. talked about um and it sticks out to me. He talked about um the notion that as as horrible as, as the Holocaust was. Right. And it was a horrible thing. But there was a <laughs> face. You know what I'm saying? He was like, you know, if you're a Nazi, we're coming, you know, knocking your door and pull you out your house. A hundred years old. You know what I'm saying? There's a face that you can put to that evil. It right. was like, you know, our face is just white. You know, what I'm saying we don't really right. have you know, you know, <laughs> it, that conceit has informed so many conversations and so much of what I did, like the notion that. There's never been a prosecutable case of slavery. Right. You're saying the greatest human atrocity, you cannot argue it. I mean, unless you go back to biblical times, which we don't really know, but the greatest human of of, of record and record are recorded times, you know what I'm saying? One of the greatest yeah. human atrocities ever. And there's never been a prosecutable case. It's not illegal. You know what I'm saying? And there's never been a true apology. You know what I'm saying? Right. Clinton is yeah. like a bullshit version of it. There's never been a true apology. So the notion that you take these people for 400 years and then say, you know, after a certain time, all right, nigga, it's over. You know what I'm saying? Go be free. And now expect them to just live in that same society and not yeah. be fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Is really yeah. really really interesting. And like and not really give a face other than you know what I'm saying our it's it's, it's a very yeah, and, then,
0: and then this is the country that it happened in, and <laughs> the, their relatives <laughs> live around you. Yes. The generations of from the people that did that are down the street. Down the street. Like the Nazis, they all crawled away. They were busted. They were war crimes. It was fucking horrible, but they were Germans. But, but this is sort of like, yeah, that was the old way of commerce. And now we don't need you, but enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly
1: right. So it's just, that's crazy. I think it's interesting. Um, and, you know, you guys, you and Patrice touched on stuff like that, but I feel like it's just, it's an interesting sort of like that informs and not to sort of harp, you know what I'm saying? Like I've, in, my, in the show, the show I did for Netflix, every episode was kind of because of slavery and then like a ty- something after it. Because I do really, in my heart, you know what I'm saying, and it goes back to that thing that you guys were talking, you and Patrice were talking about. If they say it takes two to three generations for something to normalize, right? So like for us, I think a generation is 12 years, right? 12 or 15 years. Uh-huh. So the notion that for us to see two guys kissing took about two generations. Two you know what I'm saying us to not go, yeah. like, whoa, you know call the police like for us to sort of be yeah. like, you know, it's a little bit more normalized than it was 30 years ago. You know what I'm saying?
0: It's, oh, sure. Yeah, you got, you know, it's it, it's like uh it, you, you sort of adapt to to it's it's about tolerance. Right. Really. So 400 yeah. years.
1: If 30 years takes for, what does it take for a for a community to forget 400 years of something? You know what I'm saying? Like we were in, that was yeah. that was 40 generations or 35 generations. You know what I'm saying? If it takes so the idea of that is it's just amazing. And it informs a lot of, I think, when I see, you know, people in my, in, in my community doing certain things that I'm like, oh, please don't do that. I'm like, I then think back, well, they're doing pretty good considering.
0: Like what? What's an example? I don't
1: know. Like when I see, um, you know, rims, rim, a rimmed out car bumping, you know, what I'm saying in a long come <laughs> neighborhood in the middle of the day. You know, I'm like, oh, because I'm like in my mind, I'm like with this, the, the perception we're putting out there. But then I really quickly want to explain to people that's okay. You know what I'm saying? Like the idea of like the, right. the societal norms that that might sort of be brushing up against. There are things and reasons why that's happening that, from a social level, if we actually did some dig digging in, there are yeah. reasons that that is actually a really big step forward for us. And I'm not looking for. know excuses or or, or things like that but i feel like you take a a a group and you fucking do the most heinous of things to them for 400 years and then put them let them loose into that same group with the same people who did it and uh, in less than a hundred you know in a hundred years they are the president of that country you know i'm saying yeah i'll take that i'll take those those batting averages and say that the you know there's some some things that societally we might want to catch up on or people might want to catch up with us. So we're not going to completely ride the
0: normality wave. Yeah. I, I I just watched a movie. I got to interview Jeffrey Wright this okay. week and I watched a new movie that's on Netflix uh, a day and it's called a day. And oh, yeah. The, I, o- the story I, I, about Oakland. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, one of the through lines of that was that as slaves, we were taught to survive, but not to, to thrive. Live, yeah. Kind of yeah. to thrive. Yeah. And, uh, like I never, I, I, you know, I don't, I I don't know what that life is like, but I don't know that I ever heard it sort of framed like that. And it's a pretty powerful, disturbing movie. When I, when I see that stuff, I, I feel bad just because, you know, my life is small. I live in a house with a couple of cats. I go do stand up and I talk to people, you know, I don't, you know, black or white, it's still small. And and I don't uh, whenever I see stuff like that that depicts that kind of life, I'm like, you know, what what the fucking world am I living in? Right. So when I see your show, the black as fuck show, and I see that, you know, your character struggling with, you know, with racial identity at the level that you operate Mm -hmm. at, that that's a whole other thing that, you know, that's a little more that's a little closer to me. Like I can relate to the criticisms you have of white people in that and your relationship with the Jewish Mm -hmm. kid, yeah, more than I can understand what 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 the fuck is going on. I think
1: that's interesting because I, you know, my friend um she has this saying that she says, she's like, God, like we walk a movie, she's like, black people only get to tell four stories. You know what I'm saying? And she was like, white people get so many stories. Like we walked out of like unorthodox. We were like, what a beautiful movie. You know what I'm saying? What a beautiful niche, specialized movie. You know, and like I feel like as much as I I've heard great things about, and I love those kind of movies, and I'm sure I'm going to love Jeffrey's movie. I do feel like we get, you know, that and Boys in the Hood and Men's Society, and then we get, you know, a, a slave biopic, you know what I'm saying? And then we get, you know, I'm black and single and I can't find <laughs> yeah. a man. And then we might get some sort of, you know, historical document, you know, you know, some sort of historical movie.
0: No, but yeah, I, I get feel
1: it. like I want to get a 1917 you know what I'm saying? I want to get a, you know, yeah. uh, an, an, an ortho, unorthodox a punch drunk love, you know what I'm saying? I, I feel like we have some other things to talk about.
0: Of course. Yeah, it's a, and also oddly that, you know, culturally it's a, it, the whole culture was driven by stories. Yeah. And and you only and you only get these four in the world of commerce. I,
1: I, yes, that exactly exactly right, in the world of commerce. So, that was when we did Black AF. We I really wanted to one I just really wanted to be, do something personal. Um
0: and you're so funny, man. You never did any comedy?
1: No, man. I mean, I did a rote comedy. I'm don't. I'm not i not I'm not an actor at all. And I would never act in anything else other than that particular role.
0: But you, ne- you, you never did stand-up? I tried either? stand-up
1: when I was in college. You know what I'm saying? A handful of times. Yeah, I did a handful of times. And I was actually decent. That's how I got into writing. You know what I'm saying? But I, I knew that I did not have the gift of presentation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I yeah. I did the jokes, but I could not. Chris Tucker came in. I was in Atlanta going to school. And Chris Tucker came in and he bumped all the like open micers, right? Of course, because he's working out. And for an hour and a half, he got up and talked about talked about nothing. And I was like, I will never be able to do that.
0: Was it like at the punchline? Earthquakes
1: comedy, uh, uh,
0: uptown comedy (laughs) corner, (laughs) I think it was called. Oh yeah, earthquake. I want to interview earthquake. But getting back to what you were saying, I forgot to bring it up with about Patrice. Like that interview to me, like the the people that lock into that thing, it's like it's it's almost like some sort of. uh, you know, like a a Bible, it's like it's like there are certain people that register exactly because I, you know, I knew him from around and, you know, he he always busted my balls, but that meant he loved you. And, you know, I always respected him. But, you know, we kind of tucked away up there at Sirius, you know, in a side studio. We were both on other shows. or We were guesting and he just happened to be up there and we just locked in. And I think what you're talking about is he had a fully formed philosophy of life that that he pulled out of the sky that, you know, like it's based on whatever wisdom he got from whoever he got it. But it's it was definitely this fully formed kind of point of view and philosophy that involved animals. It involved men and women. The thing that yeah. he
1: did that I really respected that I really feel like, you know, I think that Dave is and, you know, is the greatest thing living. And I think that, like, you know, they would be Michael Jordan and, and you know, and LeBron James in terms of, you know, who they are, or whatever. But I think the thing that I got from. Patrice, he was able to form those things that you're talking about which and do something that i think is the hardest to do give context to his thoughts
0: right yeah he took the time to do it and also i i think intellectually um they were harder to sell than what dave does usually and also i think that patrice honestly gave zero fucks and that and that you know his deep contempt for um I don't think it's specifically just white people, but just the way the system worked. You know, he really wanted to tear shit down. Whereas I think Dave is yes. a little more diplomatic, and
1: and Dave, Dave, in a different way, Dave. I don't think gives has about three fucks left to give. You know, whereas Patrice had zero. Yeah. I think Dave is also an academic. You know, what I'm saying, and and Dave, you know, understands yeah. and looks behind yeah. things and gets, you know, I think I think that. Patrice was a little bit more. Excuse my my thing. He was a little bit more of like a, you know, in my community, I'd be like Patrice was a little bit more of a nigga. You know what I'm saying? Like definitely, nigga, but not like Patrice was like yeah. you know. I I think it, it's he was different. You know what I'm saying? Patrice was a, a, a two two houses away from pimping. If it yeah, that's if right. All, yeah, if it yeah. all went to, to shit, he had another plan.
0: You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we got a comic. Do you know Keith Robinson? Yeah. He he was actually a failed pimp. Those are the best stories.
1: <laughs> I love. He was, I love the day when you have to give up on pimping, and you're just like, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just, it's just not for me. I'm not good.
0: He just, he just didn't have the the the
1: the. He was too sensitive. He couldn't. That is couldn't, a fucking uh, fantastic. My last day of pimping, like the day yeah. you give up pimping, like.
0: <laughs> there, there's a funny story. Talk to Keith. <laughs> And why you gave it up?
1: <laughs> like, what was that last reason? What was the thing that he was just like, you know what? I've had it.
0: I've had it with you. you, you you're more, all more on your own. For me. <laughs> so, uh, what, so you went to, where'd you grow? You didn't grow up in Atlanta though. No,
1: no. I grew up in, in Eng- between Inglewood and Pacoima. It's a little, like Pacoima's a little hood in the, in the Valley and Inglewood's a little suburban hood in South, South Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, and that your family's there? They came from there? Um, no, my dad came from Omaha, Nebraska, and moved
1: out here. And my mom, New York via parents in West Indies, New York, huh. and then grew up. she grew up in Santa Barbara. Huh.
0: That's a bit how they meet.
1: My mom was like one of the only black girls in Santa Barbara. and one, her, her, her other black girlfriend wanted to meet real black guys, so they would yeah. sneak out the house and drive to L.A. My dad was like a hood dude um, from east, east, east L.A., and he was like, you know, a year or two older than my mom. He was like in the streets. My mom loved it. And she'd go out and get, you know, in trouble with my dad and then drive back to Santa Barbara. And then she got pregnant at 16 for my dad. And my mom, my grandmother put her, you know, told her she had to go live her life. And she had my, my sister at 17.
0: Oh, wow. And your dad was like, a, he was like from Nebraska?
1: He was from, you know, but he grew up like, like in the same neighborhood as, as Malcolm X. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh. you know, he's like, that's Malcolm X from Omaha, Nebraska too. He grew up in the same neighborhood as Malcolm X. He would see Malcolm X was older than him, but he would see, he called him Big Red. He would see him in the, you know, he was older than him when he was young. Um, it's a lot of transplants actually from there. You know what I'm saying? That, that place is very sort of, has a interesting history in itself.
0: The Nebraska history, black history of Nebraska. Yeah. It's really interesting. I have, you know, my dad used to, my dad just passed a couple
1: months ago, but he used to try to have a family reunion and you would hear you know, knowing Malcolm X comes from like a really, it has a lot of, like, layered things to it. And, and you know, those two people coming together, my dad was a, a part of the Nation of Islam. You know, he's a Muslim. My mom grew up Jehovah's Witness. So, like, those two people <laughs> grazing me. Like, we I had no holidays, nothing but
0: fucking church clothes. Well, there's, a, there's definitely a certain amount of discipline on both sides of that. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. My mom, my dad was so, like, my dad was, like, a bad Muslim because he's supposed to yeah. he show these papers all the time. And instead, he would just buy them and put them in the in the garage and after he sold them because he didn't want to go out and do it. But he wouldn't eat pork, and he would tell my mom like, she, uh, if she's going to cook pork, she, she had to have a whole separate set of pots for my dad's yeah. food. So, and it was it was a very interesting sort of, you know,
0: That's like uh, being a Jew, uh, being a Orthodox Jew. Yes, that. <laughs> with the with the kosher. Yeah, you know. And so you grew up like just living in in Los Angeles at that time. Yeah. And what was it? You know, you have one sister.
1: I have one sister and three brothers, yeah. Ah, uh, three brothers.
0: Older? Um, well, one of them passed. He's my little brother
1: and two older.
0: What was, uh, how did you end up, you know, being compelled to to sort of pursue a life in comedy or show business or, like, did you, Did you, like, back then, I'm trying to figure out, I don't know what was going on when you were growing up. Did you go to comedy shows? Did you engage I mean, in shit like that?
1: I was comedy, like, Saturday Night Live was my babysitter. Um, I got a hold of my dad used to call them party records. I got a hold of like
0: the Red Fox, Red records.
1: Fox records. I got a hold of like those early Richard Pryor records. You know what I'm saying? Um,
0: Craps, the Craps record, the Crap, uh, yeah. the Blacksmith record. Yeah,
1: when he was talking about, you know, um, he told his woman he had, was was you know fucking her friend, and she got mad because she was fucking her too. You know what I'm saying? Just like things like I, yeah, yeah. And I started like realizing like <laughs> irony, and you know what I'm saying. I, I and I would sort of like those records kind of were like, you know, I was, I, my, you know, my family, my dad was abusive, you know what I'm saying? And, um, was he? yeah, he was abusive and my mom just a really strong lady, but like, you know, had a lot of kids kind of put up with it. Um, they were, he beat you up all the kids. No, he was, he was, you know, my older, my, I was so young. Um, my older brother, brothers and sisters kind of got like, you know, some shoving things. here. You know, it was really taken out on my mom. You know what I'm saying? Oh. Um, my dad was a, was a good, a good guy, but he, you know, had some, some dark days. And I think he yeah. later on in his life, you know, you know, in a lot of ways, but you know, they, my mom and he had interesting, like, he loved my mom, but like in that scary kind of love way, <laughs> It's like, you know, like, um, and he had, he convinced my mom, he had broke up one time or separated one time and he convinced my mom to like, could you just have a talk with me? And he's like, I've really gotten into church you know and I'm saying he's like, and he was like saying he went, went away from, know Islam. he's like really got in church my mom was like hmm and she he showed her a bible and she got got in the car with him and um he was like you drive and she was like what and he had cut out the pages of the bible and had a gun in it and like literally drove made her drive around and like he convinced her you know i'm saying to to take him back but like little stories like that that i would
0: hear um, romantic stories romantic
1: sweet things um but like we were my brother who you know is to this day one of my heroes funniest dude ever like when you come out of stuff like that you look for things to sort of like take you out of it and comedy was a big 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 version of that and those albums i remember the button down mine for me that um you know by new my heart. heart you know what i'm saying was just like i started liking things that were smart you know what i'm saying i really felt like i think things that were smart that felt like there was a voice to them you know like you can you could tell a new heart joke you could tell a prior joke you could tell it Right. And I started liking that really early on. And so I knew I wanted to do something with a voice. I didn't think I knew it was a voice, but I knew I wanted people to be able to hear what I had to say.
0: Well, I think you had the same reaction I did to to stand up being, you know, I didn't grow up in an abusive environment, but I was definitely uh, it was an emotionally kind of uh, draining environment. But I always felt that you know, you watch a comic or you listen to a comic, you're there's party you that thinks that like, they've got it. They understand shit. Right. You know, they, you know what I mean? Yeah. They've got, they've got it wrapped up, yeah. you know, they, it, because they could, they could say things in a certain way and, and just blow your mind and make you look at things entirely differently and feel better.
1: Yeah. I, and I feel like that's, you know, it's even in your, I look at listen to your stuff, like the idea of being comedy's under attack right now. And it really scares me because, Does it? because comics, are not just my heroes. They're important for the matriculation and the maturation of society. You
0: know yeah. I mean? but, democracy. And they're a good lubricant.
1: Yes. And what they do is they are the people who take society in and they take it through their filter and metabolize it. And what they put back out, they put something back out in a palatable enough way that makes us think and thought, provokes thought that subsequently can change society.
0: Yeah, what's your fear like right now in, in, around is
1: that the voices? It's so hard to have like you have a, you know you need the ten thousand hours. You know what I'm saying to put in yeah. before you can really actually like you look at prior and he was you know trying to find himself for a long time. You know what I'm saying you look at yeah most comics and you're like look at their early stuff. You know they're trying to find stuff. Dave actually seemed like he found himself really early, but um
0: I remember him when he was a kid. I was in New York when he came, <laughs> came when he showed up and when he was a teenager and it was solid right? he' Well, well, he has he, he definitely loved being on stage, and he, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? He and he loved the you know, like, that's the other thing between him and Patrice is like, I think, Dave, you know, he really is charming mm-hmm. and he really loves to you know, be loved up there, yeah. you know,
1: he loves what he does
0: yeah and but like i could see in the last special because i was watching him you know watching how he was working stuff is that he did this thing where he'd say something that he knew would be provocative mm-hmm. and he would kind of like laugh at himself and then run into the back <laughs> Like he he did it several times like he it was almost sort of like you know i'm gonna do this but you know i know it's gonna be weird and then i'm gonna like you know i'm gonna like i'm gonna buffer it whereas you know Patrice really wanted to blow brains out, you know, but uh, but the point was that Dave early on. Yeah, he was fully, you know, he did this thing with the hat. He did that the, the, like he did this character thing. The difference between the, the ghetto dude and the, the guy. It was just a matter of him <laughs> put, putting the bill of the hat. He did two characters by moving the bill of the hat. And it was great, man. I remember when I sat him down, it was funny because he won't I haven't been able to talk to him on this show oh wow he won't do it you know i i I don't i think he's pretty private around some things and he's i don't know i don't know you know but i remember like he was was smoking a lot of weed and he was getting fucked up and i saw it and you know and i was you know i was fucked up but i was trying to get sober and shit i remember i sat him down and i just gave him this like this big lecture about not getting fucked up and throwing away his life on drugs and (laughs) and being one of those guys and i and I brought it up to him years later. I said, "Do you remember when I, I did that I talked cuz I was fucked up when I was talking?" <laughs> and I said I said to him, "Do you remember when I did that?" He goes, "Yeah, man. I went home and read the Bible." <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's
1: interesting cuz I in the last, you know, 5 or 6 years of my life, you know, 7 years, maybe my life has just totally changed. I was a working writer, you know what I'm saying, who sold pilots, you know, and, and made a good made a good career, made a good living. Blackish happened and all of a sudden it just went, you know, it kind of took off in terms of things like that. And so I started like meeting my heroes, you know what I'm saying? And then beyond meeting my heroes, actually knowing my heroes, you know, getting to know yeah. my heroes. And it was, you know, we're like, Dave was one of my heroes, you know, and Dave was, I, you know, I would sort of like, okay, be cool, He's you're in, the, you're in the same place with him, just be cool, man, just act like a normal person. It's so, like, hey, what's up, Dave, what's going on, bro? Like I know, like, you know it's hard, but he be over the years has become so sort of like it's hard to not be normal around him because he's just so cool. And I had like the biggest sort of like mind blowing moment. I went to Toronto for um, uh, the at Laugh Festival a couple years ago. They were giving me some order or whatever. And Dave did a concert. I mean, him in a stool. Right. And it was him and John Mayer was like backing up and he let me come on stage with him and Wanda and I, I sat at a table and it was 27 or 27, 30,000 people in a round and just Dave and I was, Wanda and I were back on a stool on the stage and I got to see him like a guy who knew how to fucking work a yo-yo
0: yeah,
1: and work the audience with nothing but a stool, you know what I'm saying? And it was yeah. so interesting because the night before, I'm a Kevin Hart fan, I saw Kevin, who's a rock comedy rock star, do yeah, a totally different show. It had pyrotechnics and this sure. and it just was like seeing two different you know people at the top of their career do something but dave the way that he you know the things you know the hitting the with the mic it's just like the things that he sort of has become proprietary signature things of him i felt like i'm in the middle of something special and i don't oh, know yeah. that concert i mean where he's at in his career right now you know what i'm saying it's it's wonderful.
0: yeah and so how do you think that affects like the idea of like you think that comedy we were talking about the 10,000 hours and about the comedic voices. Is this about the self-censorship element of, of comedy right now?
1: Absolutely. And, and we don't have we don't have the scions that we used to have. You know, what I'm saying art has always happened in salons. You know, what I'm saying there were writer, yep. writer salons and, and, you know, artist salons and you know what I'm saying and, and those guys would say, you know what, we're going to be cubists. And that became the period. Or these guys would say, we're going to write like this. And that became the period. And, and they had wealthy contributors that would sort of protect them so, so that they could still like, you know, do their art. Now, the wealthy contributors are brands, you know what I'm saying, who have yeah. people and stock, stockholders and things that they have to answer to. So you don't, if you're trying to come up and you have a voice you know, and you still want to take care of yourself, you have to like watch what you're saying because your career could be over you know what I'm saying, in an incident, you're trying to formulate your thought and your voice, it could be over, and I feel like that's that hurts society.
0: Well, it's tricky, you know, also that, you know, that everything is so fragmented, so, you know a big voice to uh, how many people are they going to, is anyone going to know him? Like I find that all the time. There's so much shit out there. I mean, you know, Chappelle has risen to this mythic level for a lot of different reasons. And Louis was sort of the king of comedy for a while, but then it sort of breaks apart. You know what I mean? Like I've known Kevin for years, but you know, I don't, you know, millions of people go to see him. But he doesn't seem to hold the same place as like uh, Chappelle. Mm-hmm. He holds this other place. Like you said, he's a rock star. It's almost like bordering on on motivational speaking. <laughs> no, seriously, it is. It's like going to a it's like going to a a, a TED talk with needle drops. And in, some, know, yeah. in some aspects. So that's so weird to me that you were kind of like a. Because like I saw Dave on the one uh, day I last see him, I was hanging out with him a few years ago at the Oddball Festival. And yeah, he is sort of laid back and he's always sort of thoughtful. And, you know, he's he, he's not he's, he is not that intimidating, I guess, once you get to know him. But you were kind of a, a nerdy writer guy, you would say. One hundred. I mean, I was I, I, I was literally
1: um, my who I am. You know, what I'm saying like take away the you know, like I want to, you know, dress in sweatsuits, and change stuff like I'm I'm a kid who had asthma. Who read, you know, a ton of comic books? Who read, you know, Sedaris?
0: What comics?
1: All Marvel. I was a huge all the the whole X Men thing. I, you know, there was a, a comic that I tried to get called um, Power Pack. It was about these kids that were like this family of, of kids who, like, an alien came down. And he was dying. He gave them each one of his abilities, and and they kind of like melt, kind of melded into like the the mutant world of, yeah. of X Men. When when that whole when the X Men were all the out branches were the best with the movies that you wish Fox could have done. Right. Because they were by far the better, way better than the Avengers.
0: So this is when you were a kid, you were, you were sort of like a a quiet kid, or you were like just hold up with comic books and, and Bob Newhart records.
1: I was a, I was a kid who was very close to his mom, um, Uh. who, um, you know, my brothers were in the streets and my mom was determined to not let that happen with me. Uh I, you know, my mom, like, you know, was, Working two jobs. And I remember she saved up and got me world book encyclopedias and was like, read yeah. that. And I'm like, what? She was like, that, the whole thing. And like, so I started <laughs> like reading the encyclopedia. Um, and you know, like, I saw, so I, you know, I, reading was like, you know, for me, a really, really big thing. Um I grew group in a neighborhood, you couldn't just go outside necessarily um, without. Was that bad? It wasn't that it was that bad? It was, you know, it was fine. I, I would go outside. So, but you could also, the more time you spent outside, the more time you were. Going to be become a part of the outside. Um,
0: right, mother, become a part of the outside. My I brothers like that. had
1: done that in their own way. So my <laughs> mom was determined, and my sister too um, was determined to sort of, you know, get me into other things. Um, and it worked. It, it did work.
0: It did work. I didn't think it would, but it did. And were did were your brothers protective of it as well? Um, no, <laughs> nah, they were
1: doing their thing. You know, what I'm saying like they were they were dudes and you know, then they, they got caught up with girls and drugs and jail and stuff like that. Not that they didn't love me, but they, they were in their life. My sister was really like my mom and my mom was very, very supportive. Um, so I, you know, my grandmother, I was raised by like three generations of, of women.
0: And your father like split or was there? You know, he was
1: there. Um, he was, he was definitely divorced, but like, I knew my dad, and I would spend summers there, you know, things like that. But my dad also was on his own thing. You know what I'm saying? He was trying to find himself and. Yeah. Um, you know, just a, a guy and him, you know, trying to really, you know, he wasn't empty or absent from my life, but he was not, you know, he and my mom had such a, a, a tumultuous sort of, yeah, my mom shot my dad in front of me. You know what I'm saying? Like, it had, really? yeah, my, it had such a tumultuous sort of, um, relationship that I made a choice when I was a kid and if the, the choice was undoubtedly my mom's side. And so whenever I'd have to be around my dad, I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, my dad, my dad broke my mom's jaw while my mom was pregnant with me. My mom had to drink, and it was the 70s, so she had to drink 70s protein shakes through a straw with her mouth wired. They didn't know if I was going to make it or not. You know what I'm saying? So you would hear these stories as you were coming up, like my mom has a little thing here, and you can hear how it happened. And So I, I made a choice, and that choice was my mom, and my mom was very, very, very much so intent on all her kids going to college. Even my brothers who got in trouble went to USC, and my sister to like, she was like, this was the whole point of the civil rights movement was that they fought so that we were not going to college was not a choice for us. And I think we were yeah. the first generation that that was an obligation.
0: But how long, like how old were you when he was like out of the house?
1: Um, I, I, young. He he got out the house oh. when I was uh, five or six.
0: Uh-huh.
1: They were going through a divorce when my mom shot him. I think I was like seven or eight. You know what I'm saying when that happened,
0: where'd she shoot him?
1: She shot him in the stomach.
0: oh my god you
1: you know she was she will kill me for saying this of course i'm just who my mom i black moms and jewish moms are the same thing i would say they both like believe in like disciplining through guilt and like (laughs) so my mom i did an article at the new yorker a few years ago and i told the story when my mom my dad broke into our house right and i when my mom saw him like you know and she saw heard the noise or whatever and my mom had a gun and she was, you know, saying, "Go home, Pat. Go home." And my dad was like, "What are you going to do? Shoot me?" And I saw my mom kind of close her eyes and turn her head. Yeah. And and I tell the story that my mom pulled the trigger until I until I heard click. So she let off a lot of shots. She's like, I, "I didn't shoot him six times. I only shot him four. I only shot four times." I'm like, "Mom, okay." I'm like, "This is my story. I mean, you can't tell me the fucking bullet count for my yeah. drama." Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, but yeah, it was. Um, it was something And he he survived. He survived. Yeah, he survived. He big time survived. My dad was I believe I, I to this day believe that we were we're getting an autopsy and luckily we ordered one so we could not go back. I think my dad died from corona. He died of acute respiratory failure um, a couple of months ago and it like came out of nowhere. But Corona huh. was not announced yet. You know what I'm saying? But now after it got announced, I'm like, oh my God, this was all the signs like clotting you know, got on a ventilator, couldn't talk, you know what I'm saying, and hit him quickly, and he was just gone. And you
0: know, He was in L.A.?
1: He was, he lived in, yeah, basically, he lived in Apple Valley, yeah.
0: Well, they say, well, they say it was here a lot earlier than we think.
1: I think I, I really, I'm waiting for the autopsy results now to get redone. I really b- would not be surprised at all if it was.
0: Just for your own peace of mind? I would,
1: I, yeah, for my own peace of mind, because I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Um, we had renewed our relationship and actually found a really good place, and I got a chance to see him before he passed, but I didn't think he was gonna pass because he, was, he went to the hospital and nothing was theoretically wrong with him, and then he huh. died.
0: Wait, so where'd you go to college? You went to college in Atlanta. Went to
1: college at Clark Atlanta University.
0: Um, and, tried to, and you were studying what? Um, radio television <laughs> film. Um,
1: I, okay. I, I knew I wanted to do something. I, a lot of that came from you know, know knowing that um, I wanted to be a doctor at first, and then I took one semester of chemistry and I have never felt stupider. Like I, I think I got like a three percent on the test, and I like I never came close to that.
0: So hard. So
1: hard. <laughs> like <laughs> so, I was like, I just don't grasp
0: this. I couldn't either. Um, I couldn't fucking grasp algebra. But chemistry was like, what the fuck? It, they might
1: as well have been talking another language. So I, I realized that it was probably not the path for me. And my best friend was Tyra um, Tyra Banks, and like she had blown up already when we were in high school. And I kind of,
0: oh, you knew her from that when you were a kid. We knew for each other since we were
1: babies. Really oh, funny. and I so I felt like she because she was such a big model at that time, and I was entering college. In a lot of ways, I felt like I wanted to go work with her or work for her. So that was part of my sort of like I, I felt like she was so close to me that would be a part of my world.
0: And it
1: it it was. <laughs> yeah, we we did model together. Yeah.
0: So you so you went for the full four years. You got a degree in show business. Mm-hmm.
1: Stayed in Atlanta for a quick second, knew uh-huh. I wanted to get home. I had to get back to LA.
0: What were you doing in Atlanta? You, you stayed there for like a year after college or like something? Like
1: maybe six months. I worked in music publishing and I worked, you know, tried to work at CNN and like they're like sports, sports, you know, the sports division, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. producing sports. And I just was like, I was like, why am I? I'm from LA. I'm from Hollywood. Why would I not go back home? So I got back home as quickly as I could and, um, Got a job working for this councilman named Nate Holden as his press deputy, um, and he was like always in trouble. <laughs> um, but I, I, I thank him for the job. But I was always talking to old ladies about their trash not getting picked up, and you know wearing like Jose Banks suits to work, and just like hating my life. Um, and Tyra helped me get a, a, a internship or a public job at, at uh, Roger Cowan was the name of the publicity at the firm at the time, and I was like my entree into entree into show business, and I left there and um, got on as a PA, and this lady named Felicia Henderson, uh, got on as a PA, then I went to Keenan Ivy waynes show as like, a, one of my friends was like, in a writing program there, we kind of were writing stuff for Keenan, and then got on as- Which show? Uh, the Keenan Ivy wayne late night comedy show, my friend- Oh yeah. was a Got on as a writer, then I was helping him with stuff, and then we left, I left there and I got on as a writer's assistant, this lady Felicia Henderson, who's a big writer now, gave me my real break, um, and she helped me get in the Paramount Writers Trainee program through this guy, Steve Stark. And just, you know, things things started happening from, you know, here and there. And I went the, the PA route up, you know, and that's how I
0: got. Yeah. It's so funny. The Keenan like it's so weird when I was a I was a doorman at the comedy store in like the late 80s. And, you know, no one remembers Keenan for he was a he was a pretty good standout. Was he? I don't remember. Yeah, a, I remember Damon as a stand-up. Well, know. Damon was amazing. Like I used to watch him all the time. It was, oh. He was he was another one that would just go out there. Oh yeah,
1: me. he has that famous joke, uh, you know about uh, once you get famous, like uh, they come and ask you, "Now, nah, Damon, now that you've made it in Hollywood, what do you think about the about the racism?" And he said he looked at the camera and goes, "If it is racism, I didn't see none." <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> and it was. It was such a joke ahead of its time, the yeah. notion of like them giving you like, you know, buying your, buying your slavery back, you know what I'm saying? And yeah,
0: like, right, right, right. So believe, yeah, no, he was, he I was great. That,
1: I believe that they are the most brilliant comedic family in history. I really no like, kidding, was yeah. Like a hyperbolic statement, but that is what I believe. I believe that Kenan is a comedic genius, Damon is a genius, Marlon's a genius, something, whatever it was in there. They grew up Jehovah Witness, too, and I think there's something about that. That is very interesting. I heard Jay-Z and Prince and just some other, I don't know if that's true, but I I think there's something about a a sort of oppressive, hard religious upbringing. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, isn't the Jehovah's Witnesses where you can't really dance and shit? Can't
1: go, can't have birthdays, no Christmas. You can go to dances within, you're not supposed to be, they call it worldly. You're not supposed to be worldly. You're not supposed to be of the world. You're supposed to keep within your, you know, your group because... You know, worldly things will infect you. And, you know, so like, you know, the idea of sort of socializing is in terms of what the world is shunned upon. And all right. All you want to do is like do what you're not supposed to do. So I think people who came out of that, Michael Jackson, like it causes this sort of like explosion once you hit society because you have so much inside of you. You So that's my
0: that makes sense philosophy on it. But you, but you didn't grow up with that strict uh, uh, situation. I
1: did not. My mom, and because my mom and dad were both separate things, we, we didn't have to go to either. The kids didn't yeah. have to choose. You know what I'm saying? My mom went to the hall, and sometimes will go with her. And my dad would go to Moss, and sometimes, you know, we, we right participate in that.
0: So when, okay, so you do the PA route, but what, what, how do you come up? Because did you create America's Next Top Model with Tyra?
1: Yeah, yeah. We um, we were Tyra and I were developing a um a couple movies at the time and they were getting in development hell and reality was kind of at its like sort of like nascent sort of birthplace and we were like i was like you know you're a big bottle we should do something with which you do other than us trying to sort of like make a star and us let's and so we started really kind of the original thing we titled for top model was going to be like brains beauty and brawn like we were going to sort of like have them. Models, because we were kind of copying off a survivor, like on an island, who are pretty, but they also have to use like strength and their their smarts to like get out of different situations. And we that sort of went away, and we started talking about like which should be the you know Sarah started, started telling me that there actually is a technique to modeling, and there's secret things I had never heard this. And we I was like this is sort of like how Making the Band is how there's a part, is something, and, and so we end up getting Ken Mock who was one of the creators of Making the Band. And he yeah. was the, the, the guy who sort of like took and helped shape this shape top model into a show.
0: And that was, a, it was a huge show. It was a kind of like, a, it, it set some sort of precedent. It was, a, you know, because that model of show became a, applied to any number of shows. Yes. Right?
1: Yes. And it was, it was very derivative and everybody but me got rich off of that show. <laughs> Um, I got enough money to say no to some things, you know what I'm saying? For me, yeah, I might as well have been rich, but you know, they got rich, rich. I don't I don't fuck with Kid Mock to this day because I feel like he fucked me, you know what I'm saying, out of that show. Yeah, how'd you get fucked? Um I I was very green, you know what I'm saying? But I, I yeah. you know, obviously I had you know I had taste, and that's something I think that you know, Rashida says, um, Rashida Jones says her taste is her talent. And I kind of feel like I I still I'm just gonna steal that. And so that's sort of my talent. I I could taste it. I knew it was hot or not. And so I knew when things weren't right. And Ken, the very first episode had turned the first episode into the network without showing me or Tyra and I lost my shit. And I, I you know, cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at that time. I'm fresh. Not, I'm, I'm young. I'm like, not that long from being in the streets. You know what I'm saying? I came in as this little Asian dude and I was ready to beat his ass. And I told him in his office, I was like, I'm gonna fuck you up. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I handled it completely wrong but
0: <laughs> no it
1: I, <laughs> I know completely wrong but it was i felt so you know assaulted by it and like i i basically quit you know what i'm saying i basically was like i don't want to be a part right. and i took a a buyout and you know what i'm saying i and i let them sort of strong arm me into what i um you know what i should have been um what i I should have been, I should have gotten a lot more from it, but I, you know, it was, it was the most amazing thing. I had, it started my career. You know what I'm saying? It gave me the power to say no in a way that I can't, you know what I'm saying? Really?
0: Yeah. So how did you settle on, you know, creating comedy after that? It seems like a big jump.
1: Um, I always wanted to do comedy. Um, you know, I got into my first real, you know, job was on a drama. I wrote a drama for four seasons of drama with this lady, Felicia Henderson. Um, this drama, Soul Food.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, that was, you were you just in the room? You were in the writer's room? I
1: was in the writer's room, man. It was between there and Canada. They taped it in Canada, so I'd go up there for, for, for taping. Um, so, that
0: was the first time in a writer's room for a job?
1: Well, I kind of was in the writer's room with writers a little bit, you know, around the writers, but not, not really. Right. It really was, um, that was my first, like, in a writer's room paid. I had done a writer's room on BET, but that was the first big writer's room show that I had done.
0: What's the B E T writers room?
1: Um it was I worked for on a show called Live from LA it was this comedian Michael Collier.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I remember him. And
1: he had a show and it was a lot of funny um, writers on there actually.
0: Um Michael Collier, the he used to be a street performer, used to be right? A
1: street performer at Venice
0: Beach. In Venice Beach. Yeah. I remember him. Yeah. What happened to that guy?
1: Um, I don't know. I love him though. He came and did Blackish and he
0: did such a good job. Um Oh, that's nice. Um, and he was so funny, was a really good guy. So now the writer's room experience, I mean, so you like, you really kind of pulled it together all the way from PA and then you, you did you, but you weren't a writer's assistant at Keenan show. You were just a PA. I was PA.
1: And and, and then, um, we had gotten, discuss- Lady Shawna Gar was giving us a writer's job and, and the show got canceled right as before our first writer's job. You know, we got it and David did, we, and it went away as the show was getting
0: who you and who
1: my, my partner at the time was this guy, Fisett Walker. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, you guys actually, um, Ian Edwards was one of the writers on that show. And I think Ian is one of the funniest dudes. And there was, Vernon Chapman was on that show. I, but like, some of the funniest human beings. You know Which show was this? This was the Keenan Ivy Wayne show.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, Vernon's like a real, he's out there, dude. He's a genius.
1: He had a pitch that they still talk about. Now. It, it was, um he pitched a sketch called Too Many Niggas on Stage. Yeah. And it was at the Wu-Tang-esque group. And like a guy came out and he was like, yo, God, he's like, I got new God. I got God, God. And it's like, and all of a sudden, like uh, it's a hundred people on stage and the stage collapses. And you hear yeah. as like, it's a, a it's like a, a mess of everything. And you just hear for under the rubble, man, we got too many niggas on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I knew when Vernon went to go right for Chris Rock. You could hear the jokes. You could hear his voice. You know what I'm saying? And you could hear this other guy, um, uh, Michael Anthony Snowden, just a fucking brilliant guy. He he co wrote um uh Scary Movie and, and um White White Chick or some other some of those other things whatever the Wayne Show, yeah. Yeah and but like brilliant, brilliant people. And you could hear that was my first time like you started being like, like I can hear a Mark Maron joke. You know what I'm yeah. my partner Groff, Jonathan Groff came and did your show. And John Groff? Yeah. He was my partner He's, on Blackish.
0: He like I dude John Groff and I started together in Boston doing stand up. He was the, I got him his first writing job. Oh, wow. He's a funny
1: motherfucker, dude.
0: He, he, uh, like I was hosting short attention span theater on Comedy Central and he was a comic, but like he was moving into writing. But we did open mics together in Boston in the fucking 80s, dude. Oh, wow. So what? I'd known him a long time and I needed, I, I, the they didn't want to hire a writer at this dumb little clip show I did, and I made them pull. You know, I pulled in John, and that was his first job oh. uh, writing. And then he went on to Conan, and and that was history. He's a
1: monster, monster, monster in the writers room. Seriously, really, he, he you know he's a Jeopardy grand champion, and yeah, you know, it's just super funny. You know, guy that like bits will come out of the. You're not even thinking about stuff, and he'll just do it. I forgot that he was there. The, so you guys, you created that together? No, I created it. I created it, but... Um, How'd you meet him? So when I was creating it, um, the person they brought on to, to help me through the pilot was Larry Wilmore, who you know, was, I was a yeah. huge fan of. Larry and I parted before the show started, or right before the show came on, because Larry got the nightly show or whatever. And so I knew yeah. I was going to need... Going into it, I knew, I knew before the show even got picked up that Larry was going to have his show. So I knew I was going to need an experienced person to do this with. And we brought in Jonathan Jonathan Ross, so he was there with me from the beginning. And although he didn't create the show with me, he is by in every aspect my partner on that show. Like he um, he was amazing, you know. He for a white guy from you know New Hampshire or Boston, wherever he's from, to come in to let a guy who had never run a show before ta- do something different because that show hadn't really quite been done like that before. And I just was telling stories about my family, and he. Took let me sort of like really run, run a show, but at the same time told me what I didn't know and dealt with the network and dealt with editing. I, I, anyone else, the you know the ego that would have been you know they would have possibly had, would have not let my voice come out. But he really 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 fostered my voice in a way. And he did the same thing with the kid who created David Katz, who did created Happy Endings. You know, what I'm saying he was a you know there's a few of those guys Ira Underlinger, you know, there's a few of those guys who in town they do something really special. And they know how to come in and work with writers and let their voice come out. But at the same time, not let the, their ego get in in the way so that the, the show doesn't suffer. And
0: he's one of those guys and he's, you know, paid well for it. But so wait, so what was the jump? to? So when you created Blackish, what was the what was the inspiration, man? Like you were just it's time for a black show. i sold a ton of pilots. I sold 19 pilots
1: and, you know, they had gone to various levels, but never went all, all the way. And Mm -hmm. I was in those pilots. I think I was trying to like do the family people wanted to see. Sometime I'd write a show and then I'd turn the characters white. You know what I'm saying? Or I'd I'd do sort of like the the Malik and Saul, like a black guy and a Jewish guy who lived next door. I was trying to like find some hook. And I felt like I really started like thinking the people who I loved and the people that I sort of like really wanted to emulate, the thing that they did time and time again was they told their story. And so I was like, you know, I finally was like, fuck it. You know, I, I had so many friends. My wife's a doctor. Um, you know, I, I had these kids who, you know, you're taught to give your kids more than you have.
0: But yeah. by doing
1: that, what do they lose? You know what I'm saying? What do you lose out on? And I had these kids who were, look, were black kids but didn't look like it, the black kids that I remember in terms of the things that they wanted, the things that they did, their friends. And I started talking to so many of my friends, and that was their experience, too, whether they were black or white. And so that was sort of the conceit of the show, is that our people our age, having kids, we were kind of started like being the dinosaurs. Right. And, playing, and I was trying to like hold on to like the blackness in my kids. But at the same time, I wanted them to sort of have the privileges of little white kids. And so yeah, that yeah. was sort of the conceit of like what Blackish is about. And, you know, we got when I got a chance to do it, it was. You know, Lawrence Fishburne is why that show got picked up. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was just uh-huh. a big star to be doing comedy and, like, such a a, a big jump. He's um, so Anthony, good in it. He's beyond good. And Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ross are why it stayed on. You know what I'm saying? Because they're all, you know, but, like, we all, you know, kind of came together. And we were in this little siloed-off pod. Um, Will Moore, Groff, me, you know, the, the guys. And it just was like we we did something. And you could kind of feel... We didn't know if it was going to work or not but you kind of felt like whether it worked or not it was you felt good about it and you felt like it was different.
0: Um, what in in your mind like sort of like what do you think how was it part of the evolution of that uh, of a black family show? Like what how was it different in your mind?
1: So I think Cosby for me you know um was amazing. You know what I'm saying? I think yeah. that it was, it was it changed society. You know, it was the first time my white friends wanted the same dad that I wanted. You know what I'm saying? I was right. like, oh, you want to be your dad too? I want to be my dad too. Like, you know, in it, but Cosby was very, he was very political in that he made a point that Cosby showed they could have been white. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You could make those characters and tell the same, basically the same stories. Right. White. And he did that purposely. You know, he did yeah. not talk about race. And and I made a point with Blackish that it was absolutely about a Black family. You know, and like, it was about their experiences. And I, so I think that was the evolution. And And at the same time, it was, Whereas the Cosby's never really seemed conscious of their socially socioeconomic status. You know what I'm saying? That was a multi million dollar brownstone and they were, you know, obviously doing really well. They never really seemed too conscious of their socioeconomic st- status. We were, that show, Blackish was very conscious of like, they have made it. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, they have, you know, they're at the... You know, and and really in the middle middle class pool in a real big way, yeah you know right you know subsequently it ended up I think one of the things that kept that show on and keeps it keeps it going is for a long time it was the it was the watch the group that watched it the most was the highest per income um, family highest per income groups in the, of any show on television watched that show I don't know God why Cosby uh, no Blackish oh okay good I think that it was the, the sort of aspirational wish fulfillment part of it you know what I'm saying and yeah. but like the people who watched it there were a lot of for advertisers who wanted to come and sell expensive stuff that was a good place for them and so i think that it it got gr- good ratings great ratings at first and then empire came and took all our all our african american viewers away because it was opposite us but um you know got got you know really decent ratings and still gets decent ratings but it was the i think the voice of that show ended up being what actually made it special
0: right for sure and did you find that like cuz i know that you know whatever your relationships were with your family, that you know the, that this is a milder version of of you and your father.
1: Oh, one hundred percent. That was the love letter to my dad. Yeah, you know I mean? that was you know, um, you know, my dad. You know, was the was the was not that version of what yeah. pops, but he had some of those things. Yeah, that we saw pops out. You know, there was a. I was just having this conversation. It's so you interesting. left
0: out the jaw breaking.
1: I left out the jaw breaking and, the, and the, him get, I did not leave out that she shot him though. Yeah. I did not leave in blackish. You know, the mom has shot the dad. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, but um, you know, there's a great thing. I like, you know, honeymoon is one of my favorite shows. Ralph Graham did, you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. But the notion of what the difference between black characters and white characters, like here was a character that wore a wife beater. that told his wife, you know, say one more fucking word. I'm gonna, suck you, I'm gonna punch you in your fucking mouth. And that was like a beloved you know, statement. You know what I'm saying? Like to the moon. To the moon. I'm gonna fucking punch you. And <laughs> but no notion
0: You knew. he'd never do it.
1: You knew he'd never do it. But the idea of a, I think that was the notion of what Cosby understood that he could never at that time be a black character. It had. He had to be perfect. It's right. It, it was Barack at the Romney debates. You know what I'm saying? Where you knew Barack could have sliced him to shreds during that debate. But he. You have to meter yourself. And that was Cosby meeting room. So, for me, Black Wish was a little bit more stepping—not quite pow to the moon, but you had, you know, Anthony is blustery. You know, what I'm saying Lawrence was a little bit, you know, not great as a as a as a grandfather. You know, what I'm saying. Um, so it was a stepping out a little bit. And I kind of think what what I wanted to do when I did this show at Netflix was take that next step. You know, what I'm saying and say that we could. Not have to worry about not just not worry about being perfect. Be completely fucked up. You know, <laughs> what I'm saying? be completely fucked up and be completely flawed. You know, but that be a version of what the black experience is because we're not monolithic. You know, what I'm saying we're not. You know, there's not there's a version of it that lives in 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 the Cabrini Green's projects where Good Times is. There's a version that lives in that brownstone with Cosby. There's a version that lives in Studio City with Blackish. There's a version that lives you know, with Bernie Mac and there's, you know, there, we don't have to keep telling the same
0: version of a story. That's right. So you, that, you, that's, then it's more than four stories. That's good.
1: It's, but it's still a family story, but it's, I'm trying to, uh, for me, I'm trying to not be a part of that four story version. Yeah,
0: the, well, I think what's unique about you right now is in, in, in talking to you, but in watching the new show is your, your, your weird self-consciousness. So like, because I, <laughs> that's the the primary difference is you know, there's the the swagger necessary to maintain a type of lifestyle that you judge yourself against as being you know what what kind of like slightly irresponsible rich black person should be yes. like your awareness of it and you're judging yourself, putting yourself in between those guys that you know, and in between this Jewish kid and also Hollywood or who was the guy that made the, was it, who made the guest Who was the writer? Was it? Steve Levitan. Yeah. Levitan. Like you are, that's, that's part of you in your head and it always Absolutely. has been part of you.
1: I, like, you know, it's interesting for, because that story is a real, the conceit of that story is based on a, a, a thing with Jeffrey Katzenberg. I went to, um, the stupidest thing I did when I got any money is I bought a Ferrari. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I did it. I, it has like 400 miles and I never drive it. But it, I did it and, and I was kind of embarrassed to drive it. Um, and one night I got um, tickets, floor seats to the Lakers game and I was like, I asked my daughter, I was like, hey, you want to go to the game? And she was like, sure, I'll go to the game. And I was like, let's take the Ferrari. I was like, you've never even been in it, right? She was like, no. So we had a daddy daughter night. We went out, we're sitting on the floor and walks, who walks up to me, halftime, it's like fucking Jeffrey Katzenberg. I look up, I'm like, hey, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And he's like, hey, man. He's like, I just want to tell you I'm a big fan. I'm like, the fuck are you talking about, Jeffrey Katzenberg? I'm looking for fucking Ashton Kutcher to come out, run out. I'm like, what's happening right now? And he's like, you know, look, man, I really love your voice. He's like, would you ever want to have breakfast? I'm like, sure, Jeffrey Katzenberg. I'd love to have breakfast one day. So I give him, we exchange numbers. It's, you know, we go back to the game. It's an overtime game. Me and my daughter have a great time. We get home late. Um, 11 30 i'm like you know getting out of the shower jeffrey katzenberg texts me he's like hey bud would you want to have breakfast somewhere i'm like oh shit he followed up and i'm like yeah jeffrey katzenberg i'll have breakfast here. so i'm like you know rushing out he wants to go to john and benny's in la i live in the valley i'm like i gotta get over there. i'm running it's late i know there's gonna be traffic and i run out the house and i realized where i parked the car usually i park in the garage it was blocking all the other cars and i was already late and i was like fuck i'm gonna have to take this car i was like you know what i'll park it up the street so I go to park it up the street. Of course, there's no parking spaces. Of course I'm about to run late. So I'm like, fuck it. I'll just park and I'll run in. As I get out the car, who's in the fucking Prius ahead of me? Fucking yeah. Jeffrey Passenberg. And, and he gets out and he looks and he turns around. He's like, hey, man, nice car. Nice <laughs> trip for you. Nice car. Hey there. He's kind comes up to the side and he opens up the passenger. He's like, what year is this? So I'm like, I don't know, you're just one of them, man. I and I, I, I all I was hearing in my head is hey, black guy spending all his money on a car, I could buy Ferrari. <laughs> and I just was like, I wanted to burn the car. I wanted to take it and burn it in the middle of fucking... <laughs> yeah. I was so bothered that during the breakfast, I'm not even listening to anything he's, he's saying. I'm just Googling, does Jeffrey Katzenberg have jet? You know, I'm like, does like he spend his money ir- irresponsibly too? Like, I'm not listening to shit he says. And I'm mad at myself because I'm like, Honestly, in terms of afford, I could afford this car. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like a, an expense that I was, you know, no, I was, but I felt stupid having it. I felt even stupider that this billionaire is in a Prius. You know what I'm saying? And right. I felt that's the duality that starts the conceit of the show that lasts, you know, basically, is that we're I'm constantly fighting this sort of like damned if I do, damned if I don't feeling.
0: Yeah. But but is is that has that always been with you that, you know, do you because you do seem a little thoughtful in the sense of like, you you know, you're you're not cocky. I mean, you know, you've got it sounds like, you know, you have your moments where you get pissed off, but it's not like you do something where you're, you you know, uh, totally shameless without recognizing what you're doing.
1: Yes, I I think I've, I've forced myself. To do it. Like there's been moments when I'm sitting at like a fucking parent-teacher conference, and I catch a glimpse of myself in like the mirror, and I'm like, "This parent, this teacher is not taking me seriously." <laughs> like I have a, a, I have sagging jeans on, a hoodie with with two hundred thousand dollars worth of chain sticking out of it. You know what I'm saying? And you know, I, I, it's like I'm like this person is not taking me serious, and I I realize <laughs> that I'm supposed to be a parent here, and then I have to always like. But fuck that! This is who I, I'm. Always living that back and forth
0: moment. But, but 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 that just tells me that you know there's some part of you that doesn't take it serious. That you're like, what am I doing? I I, I, I
1: absolutely know. I'm you know I remind I, I'm 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 desperately trying not to be the the old guy who's trying to be hip. You know, what I'm saying who's yeah. trying. You know, like it's it's right at that point though. I'm right there.
0: You it's know very I, hard but, to know how to dress as a as an old guy.
1: <laughs> it is. <laughs> It
0: is because like there just seems to be like either you you try and hang on or you're just wearing clothes and no one even fucking notices. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you want to And the notion of even trying sometime you do better to not try, because if you try and fail, then you've actually really failed. Yeah. But if you don't try and you feel like I, didn't, I wasn't trying, I don't care. So trying sometimes makes it a little bit harder. So you're, you're a little bit more conscious of it. So I'm very conscious of everything with myself you know what i'm saying I, I i i remember seventh grade my face broke out horribly right right yeah. when you're you like girls right when you're you know what i'm saying and you know it made me i think that more than anything along with stuff made me sort of funny because i went and sat in the back of the class i would sit in the back of the class and i would just watch every single person that walked in I'd, and i'd look at them every day from head to toe head to toe and I'd wait for someone to say, try, you know, I was a shy kid. And I'd wait for someone to say, try to bag on me, and they'd say a bag, and I would say something back so quick that was so fucking sharp and so painful that like I would just crush them. And they'd be like, "How did he think about that?" So, and I'm like, "Oh, I've been thinking of sitting on this for three and a half months. I've been waiting for you. I was so prepared and ready that like I was like loved by fear." Yeah.
0: <laughs> But that's like, th- those are good comic chops to have. Yeah. The sort of the the preemptive, you know, insult. Yes.
1: You know, right? <laughs> yes. If I was doing comedy now, I would look in the audience before I got up, and I would just fucking just look at, like, who was a little boisterous, and I would just wait. I would have 10 jokes ready oh, yeah, for everybody yeah. before I, I
0: got up. You got to have that skill. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I looked at all audiences for probably the first decade of doing comedy. Like, they don't <laughs> like <it. laughs> Like I would go into it assuming they didn't like me and that there was going to be a problem. <laughs> and you were ready. I was ready. I, I and if there wasn't a problem, I'd make one.
1: <laughs> it was like a fucking stand your ground, open, open carry mic, open carry mic room.
0: That's right. It was just sort of like you know I, I would focus in on the one fucker that had a sour face, <laughs> and I just ruined the entire show of shit um, on that guy
1: um and, i saw Ian edwards destroy a woman <laughs> yeah. i mean like, literally may i'm sure she went home and rethought her life and she deserved every point moment of it but it's like i don't know if audiences understand that like sometime if a, if a comic a real comic is having a bad night don't give him a good night don't mm. turn it into a good night you know what i'm saying like let yeah. him let him let him go down in flames because that is one thing that most comics can do you say something and you can turn their night around
0: oh for sure yeah i mean it was like it really became this weird thing the evolution of my interaction with crowds was most of the time um y- y- you know what what other people are thinking is something you're making up like you like they're you know when you see somebody and you make assumptions you have no fucking idea what they're thinking and and they're not even thinking about you most of the time right so mm-hmm. It's like, why base your entire attitude on this idea that you're projecting onto them? Like, I talked to this British comic, Stuart Lee. He said, like, if if someone doesn't like me, I now have to, like, and this is a guy that quit the business because he couldn't stand the stupidity (laughs) of the audience's. But now like he comes back and he's got this new attitude where he sees somebody that clearly doesn't understand him or doesn't like him and doesn't think he's funny and his thought is like, Yeah, this was not a bad choice for you this night. <laughs> <laughs> you made a wrong decision. Right, and I, right. It's a, and he has empathy, sort of like, Yeah, this isn't gonna be great for you and uh you know. <laughs> So, all right. Well, how the all these other shows are going? Good, or like, are is it, are you done? Or how many issues are we gonna? Um,
1: we might do one more. Um, there's three of them now. We might do one more that um, I'm excited about. Um, um, that the, that those guys are my family, and it has been the gift that has not stopped giving for me. Um, you know, it is. I'm, I am have a, a special place in my heart for network television because you get to really reach families in a different kind of way. Sure. You know? And the rules that you are are placed upon you actually make your show better in some aspects. It makes it wider. You know, I shouldn't say better. It makes it wider. Um, and you learn to write for a wider audience. I was really, I was scared as fuck with this Netflix show. And I'm still, you know, I took, you know, it's interesting. I took a ton of, ton of bad press. You know what I'm saying? It's the, you know, but it's also the most talked about thing I've ever done. You know yep. what I'm saying? It is very polarizing. And it's like people, I literally look at like people love it or they hate it. Um, you know, I, I woke up Sunday to like a left hook from the Atlantic, you know, like just taking a shot, a swing at the show. And um,
0: what was the what was the angle?
1: Um, basically, it was someone who felt that I, you know, had some clandestine sort of fucking message in the show that wasn't. Up to what she felt black culture should be, and I'm just like, I want to have an open. This is where I want to like be a old, sli- old old West gunslinger. Yeah. I'm open to debating every one of these people because I feel like the notion of people defining what is black or what's black enough or what's not black enough or what's too black or whatever is like, who the fuck are you? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm telling my personal experience. You can't tell me what you don't want to watch it. Don't watch it. You know what I'm saying? And but talk, talk about those- it.
0: Discussion's been going on since you know the black middle class was invented.
1: Yeah, but I think that right now there is a a self appointed vanguard, which I like to cons- call the woke media. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and you know it, it goes along with white critics too. This fucking guy, you know, and I. But I understand more when you know this fucking reviewer at fucking Variety. I don't know what this guy's name is, but I'm writing it down. Like, I was swir- I could have. You could have sworn I like slept with his girlfriend or something. Like it was such. Oh, no. And like he like they the embargo on when you could review the show came out. Say it stops at like 12 a.m. on Thursday. You can start. He posted his like 12:03, so it set the furious, stage. furious. Just personally angry at me. <laughs> personally angry at me. Furious. Like I mean, like if you read, you should read the review. It's like man. And I'm, and so he set the stage for people sort of to start taking shots, um, you know. But at the same time, it was, un- it was called the funniest show of the year by like the Chicago Sun Times or something like you know, you know, and and you know, people at the Deadline loved it, and people this loved it, and people this hated it. And, but the Atlantic took a took a shot, you know, they you know, in their sort of you know academic way. Um, and I appreciate it. I although I didn't agree with it, I, I I appreciate that everyone should have their opinion. I think that's important. I, I wish that I could say I didn't read these and I didn't care, but I do fucking care. You know Sometimes what I'm like,
0: if somebody's smart, you, you know, you can, you can, t- it's easier to take in a sense because you're like, all right, well, I get the argument. This isn't just an even attack. If I don't agree.
1: Yes. Huh. Even if I don't agree, I get the argument. Right. Right. And so even if I feel like you totally missed it, which I think this person did, I get, you at least formed an opinion that was based on, gave, gave some context to
0: your opinion. Isn't there an element of it that really is addressing you Know that that conflict of like how we're supposed to live and 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 who, who gets to decide that. I,
1: I absolutely, and I think that that actually even enticed the media more to want to talk about the show because there was that sort of almost indictment, you know, what I'm saying of critics. Um, and I think that this article actually was saying that the indictment pres- had the presumption of that there were all there were, there were no black critics, and I didn't say that, you know, what I'm saying, but that was what this person you know extracted from it. With that being said. Um, you know I, you know, close my laptop. My stomach is hurting, and I get the nicest text from Malcolm Gladwell, um, who I'm not friends with or whatever. Who got my number for some and says that he, who says that he enjoyed the show, and it was so gratifying. I hope he's okay with me saying that, but it was so gratifying because I am like a disciple of Malcolm Gladwell. I love how he takes things that seem random and nothing and, and from an economist point of view puts them in in a way that you know gives some order to seeing the things that seem like they didn't have order before. Um, so, you know, it like was like a comic, like a comic, seriously, yeah. and finds the things that were, are observational, you know what I'm saying? And right. actually puts them in a way that you're like, Oh, I never thought about it like that.
0: Right. You know? Yeah. So,
1: um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's very polarizing. It's very divisive. I think that, but that, if I'm going to be honest, if I could do it all, if I had to do it all over again, I probably would do that again. You know, not try to be polarizing on purpose, but I would want to say something that probably, if you say anything that's ever worth being said, it's going to be po- If everybody agrees with what you said, you're probably wrong. You know oh, what yeah, I'm saying?
0: yeah, yeah. If you, or or else you you're, you're spineless. I used to do a joke about that. That um, uh, if if you don't have at least one guy out there saying this about you, that guy's a fucking asshole. <laughs> uh, you haven't really made an impact.
1: That's right. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so, you know, it is – it is Netflix is a really big platform, and you don't realize yeah. how big it is. Um, Until you get lost? <laughs> you get No, seriously. And that was a really big part of, like, for me, coming from ABC, where you knew you had that score in the morning after your show. You yeah. knew you had a score, and you knew that they were going to promote you because you were on their airway, so you knew yeah. you were going to get commercials. You knew you had a market – the idea that Netflix, I think, is going to do 400 series this year, you know what I'm saying? And so the idea of standing out in that crowd, you know what I'm saying, I was unbelievably important to me. You know, I wanted to make sure that it was noisy. Um, you know, and, you know, Andy and, and Jane and Ted and Cindy and, and Channing and the, the team over there and Gazal, like, you know, the comedy team over there, like, really gave me an opportunity because, and they, it was not without a fight. Like they were very scared of me playing the role.
0: You know, I, really? I think. Yeah, oh, I, think, yeah you're, I, I think you're the like the best thing about the show.
1: Oh my God, I, I'm a horrible actor, but you're I. hilarious. But, but it works in some aspects at certain times enough for that show. And it makes it a little bit noisier. I think Larry playing lay himself in curve makes it noisier. And if he had went and had an actor, it would just been another Seinfeld. And if I just, if I had an actor, it would have just been an, exactly another blackish.
0: Yeah, but you're just you're funny.
1: Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> thanks. I, I do not I I do not see myself in that aspect. I think that I'm funny on on the page. I think that I have a sense of humor. Um, I the thing that I got and it's I really give so much credit to Rashida Jones. Yeah. Because she, you know, she's a talented, gifted comedic actress, and she gave me support in a way that let me sort of be myself. And that's the that's the the hardest thing it was what you did in your show like you know it was you her Marin, you know what i'm saying and i think that's what you're whether and i was able to say whether it worked or not right. at least i had to do it the way that i i felt like i, I was it was as close to my version of, a, of that hyper you know hyperbole of a character yeah
0: yeah no it's i think it, i think it's hilarious and what was your like was your like you say when your old man died that you guys had had some sort of uh you guys were okay with each other so he was mm-hmm. able to kind of see your success and be part of it as, as was your mother?
1: Yeah. Uh, they really, they, they really were, it's been very, it's very difficult at times. I think my dad handled it better than my mom. because He's a guy. Yeah. Uh, my mom is, you know, it's, you know, she's, you know, she will say, you know, why didn't you tell me about, you know, uh, I saw in the paper that you, you know, you did this and I'm like, mom, I, you don't care about that. Why do you, I'm saying like, I, but I think she wants to know that she, so she can tell her friends. Right. I bought my mom, helped my mom, you know, got my mom a car, helped her get her a house. And she was, my mom does fine. You know what I'm saying? But she wanted to say, my son did this. Right. It was very so important for her to say that. You know what I'm saying? And I, I think that, um, you know, it's hard. Or I think it's been harder on my family because that's the thing I think just with black culture in particular, I think like Tyler Perry is an example. You know, my mom and I, you know, I like Tyler and I, I, I very much so, like some of the things he does. Everything he does is not my cup of tea, but I think that my mom and and aunts and you know some of my cousins like they love Tyler. Like they go and they were watching him his plays on VHS before it came out, and they would go first day, first weekend. His movies are number one, and they really from their heart, not because he's black, they liked his movies, and because the you know the Hollywood or whatever the masses may say it's not elevated comedy or not elevated art what the fuck? That means that these people who say they like it, their opinion is wrong. And so I, I'm, I'm getting back to the point what I'm getting is that I think it's unfair in a little, a little bit because for Tyler, he has to carry the weight of so much of the culture. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because there's so few of us. You know what I'm saying? There's so yeah. few of us. that, like, you know, Adam Sandler, who I think is amazing, you know what I'm saying? But like Adam Sandler puts out fucking Jack and Jill. It's not the end of white culture. You know what right. I'm saying? He doesn't destroy white culture because he puts out you know, some fucking you know, movie that people might say that's a shitty... Adam Sandler movie that makes a ton of money so he can keep doing it, but it's not the end of white culture, but we put, there's so few of us out that when we do something, it is put under the scrutiny of you have the whole entire culture. And I think that happens with my family too, because there's so few of us that get to like, you know, be successful as a writer. I think, you know, in in times of a comedy writer, like black comedy writer, like I'm probably one of the bigger co- black comedy writers, you know, what I'm saying, like, yeah. So, um, so it's a very unique thing, and as my mom is not. That's not something that her she can say that people are used to seeing. Yeah. And so it puts a lot of pressure on that first generation success, first generation, you know.
0: Right, and focus. also then there's the element too that you, you, <laughs> depending on, um, like, I remember when my grandmother got all her friends together. To see my 1995 HBO half hour. Yes. And within with, within the first minute, I say, fuck, like 90 times. <laughs> and, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I call her up. I'm like, what do you think? She's like, why would you have to be so filthy? Like, like,
1: <laughs>
0: but you're also up against this idea that, you know, you're doing your thing on Netflix. And there's a possibility that your mother's generation is like, why can't you be more like Tyler Perry? Yes,
1: so, no, no, my mom absolutely. When I, I quit BET, I was working on a show called The Game on BET, and I quit BET to go do my pilot on ABC. And my mom was like, So you're leaving BET, huh? You know, those those people, they really supported you over there, you know. I was like, Yeah, my mom's going to ABC. I know, but you know, and I, and it, it was, it's so interesting. Like, you know, for her, she's like, That's her people. You know right. what I'm saying? My mom and, and I, those are my people too, but I understand the idea from a career standpoint that was a jump and a leap that lets me now go back to BET if I choose to. Right. You know what I'm saying? But the idea yeah. of like being able to say to little kids to look up and want to be a writer that there is a writer who made it in mainstream right. and decided to go back to BET and, you know, and helps give BET help, we, I could help rise that, you know, help that boat rise but i think that you know it's it's so uh, scary for us sometime because there's so few of us to make those leaps
0: yeah oh, it's interesting yeah you know, because there's a you know the different version of that is people who actually you, you know are held back or hold themselves back you, you know because the culture pressures them to do it yeah you, you know to, to to get out of that mental head you know Absolutely. Like, yeah it's
1: like chris rock joke but can you kick my ass you know like <laughs> <laughs> The notion of like, you know, right. it's fuck all that smarty arty shit. You know what I'm saying? But like the idea of it, um, you know, it's a constant, it's, it's the duality, the idea of we're, we're constantly sort of speaking two languages. You know what I'm saying? As being African American and being black in America, you are speaking the language of your culture, mm-hmm. which is now being fragmented into many different languages. And you're speaking the language of the mainstream. And so I think that it's even becoming harder for black Culture, because now black culture is not, it used to be sort of a singular thing. Yeah. And now we're seeing the black culture is has a, it has a, it's, it's Donald Glover on Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? It's Gerard Carmichael, it's Tyler Perry, you know, it's Cardi B. And so we're, we're kind of like, we're at a, we're at that sort of infighting stage. But I think huh. that we will come out of this better. I do, but I think that we are at that stage.
0: One of my favorite prior lines is when he goes back home after he first gets successful and the guy in the pool house says he's just doing the same shit you did around here give me a, oh, yeah. and he goes he says give me a dollar
1: <laughs> it is so fucking real that shit is so real but that the specificity of Richard saying that yeah so many people there's a version that you understand of that
0: yeah. there's sure. a version oh yeah of course
1: whenever you level up there's always somebody's like whatever you know what I'm saying? The, yeah, idea of, yeah. like, the idea of that is so universal, but speaking about it from my culture, you know what I'm saying, we have a specific, you know, I put a tweet out and I erased it so quickly. I was like, um, niggas are such haters nowadays, it's not even fun being rich anymore. You know, like, yeah. uh, uh, the, uh, quietly comfortable is the new rich. You know what I'm uh, saying? Like, right? <laughs> I, let me take this down because this will ruin me. But I've <laughs> been The notion of, I understand, you know, that there, you know, there's so few of us, you know what I'm saying, making these things that we do, as much as we may not want it, there is a responsibility that we do represent the whole culture each time we step out. And I can't like get so mad that I, I, I respond back in a, you know, a way that seems like I'm not being open to, you know, to my, my, my community, because I do understand that I do owe them. And I do know that they have, you know, put me in position in in a way. And although I don't agree with everything, I do owe them.
0: Yeah. And also, but you're also honoring that part of you that that respects comedy that that does that to be unleashed a little bit and then and then to see what happens to be provocative.
1: Absolutely. I'm I you know, that's why this when I got a chance to do this, this when I got a chance to do your show, when I did, um the whatever shows on NPR where the woman's never in the room, Terry Gross. Oh yeah, Terry. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know I did Terry Gross when I got a humanity. There's moments that I feel like as a comedian, as a comic writer. Yeah. I'm like they matter. You know what I'm saying? And like oh, yeah. this is what I I feel like. You know I my big thing now is to really make sure that I let everyone know how much my image Awards matter. You know what I'm saying? And let everyone else know how much they matter to them too. And like that we need to start, you know, heralding ourselves more. You know what, mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And looking for such outside um, you know, so, such outside applause. Yeah, inside too.
0: Well, well, well. Thanks for talking to me, man. Thank you, man. Thank oh, you. This has been a, a, an honor. Oh, I appreciate it, and, I, and it was uh, it was really a, a good talk, a good conversation, man.
1: I appreciate, it, man. I uh, uh, we'll, 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 we'll hope, hope I see you in traffic soon.
0: Yeah, we should we should yeah. hang out. Yeah, I love that <laughs> at some point mean. when uh, when, when we so, get through the plague. Did you
1: see the fucking Pentagon put out like confirmed UFO? footage
0: oh come on
1: when was you know, this it's like, it's like two days ago on cnn like look it up and i'm like pentagon you don't think you could have waited for this yeah you know why yeah. like, right, right, we have enough on our plates right now
0: <laughs> Yeah. Um, tell them to deliver a fucking cure to this shit
1: <laughs> um all right well thanks so much mark
0: that was me and kenya Barris. Uh, Black AF, Black as Fuck is now streaming on Netflix. Um, that was it. Was good to talk to him, as I recall. when my heart was in a different place before it was crushed, bleak, sad. How about just sad? I'm grown ass man. All right. I've been playing some guitar. I've been just pounding at it. I've got to. It's hard to connect. It's hard to connect. It's hard to connect the feelings that are happening inside of me with things that are coming out of me, out of my mouth, out of my hands. But here...